0: If you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Today, we're going to be looking at the story of the woman with the alabaster jar. We're continuing our series called Stories of Grace, or Nameless Stories of Grace for the broken-hearted, And today is really going to be one of those stories about a brokenhearted woman, a woman who was broken over her sin. But I want to start by telling you a story about a guy named Tariku Fufa, who's from Ethiopia. He's pictured here with his wife, Um, when he was 13 years old, someone told him the good news about Jesus. And they told him that Jesus died on a cross and rose again from the dead to save him from his sins. And that if he would confess his sins to Jesus and embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord, he would be saved and washed clean. And Tariku did that. And he came home excited to tell his family when he got home, he told his father, and his father told him, Tariku, you will have to choose between your family and your faith. And he said, Daddy, I choose Jesus. His dad then beat him in front of the other kids and cut his face, the scars of which he still has to this day. And Tariku said his father also kicked him out of the house at the age of 13. And turned him onto the street in Beggy, Ethiopia. And for the next six years, he, in desperation, would go from house to house and door to door, just scrounging, just a beggar. And finally, somebody took him in and actually put him in a school. And his father, six years later, got word that he was in this school. And his father went there to find him to see if it was true, if he was still alive. And he found him in the school, and when he walked in the door of his classroom, he saw Tariku, and he said, Tariku, is that you, or is it your ghost? And he said, Father, it's me. And when you turned me six years earlier onto the street, he said, Jesus became my daddy and my mommy and my sister and my brother. And his father burst into tears and asked for forgiveness. And he said, right there, I forgave my dad. He took him home, and Tariku said they had a reunion with their family, and when the siblings and the family saw the power of his forgiveness, in the power of Jesus' forgiveness and mercy toward his father, that they all got saved. They just gave their life to Jesus. They could not deny the power of Jesus' forgiveness, and the story we're going to read today in Luke chapter 7 is just that kind of story, not in the details, but just telling us about the transforming power of Christ's mercy and his forgiveness of sinners. A house that was once ruled by the iron hand of religion, transformed by the power of mercy and the power of Christ's compassion, is now a house that is an emblem of God's grace, a picture of his grace. So let's look at the story today in Luke chapter 7, uh, starting in verse 36. And when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, uh, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. She is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Shimon, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender, and one owed him 500 denarii, and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both men. Now, which one of them loved him more. Simon replied, well, I suppose the man who had the bigger debt was who, that was forgiven. And Jesus said, you have judged correctly. You have judged correctly. Good job. Today, we're going to look at some of the principles in this story, some, make some observations from the story to help us to see the transforming power of Jesus's forgiveness for the sinner. The question we're going to answer, though, is the question on the minds of all the devout Jews sitting there at the table. Who does this guy think he is? Who is this who forgives sins? We're going to learn that today. The first observation we make from the story is that Jesus accepted the Pharisees' dinner invitation, sharing fellowship with him. I, this may seem like a dumb moment, but honestly, folks, dining in the ancient world was not, they, these were not casual dinners. This was one of the ways in which you accepted a, an offer of friendship, an overture of kindness or friendship from someone in your town. It was a way of saying, I accept you. Or it, w- it was a way of initiating a relational a connection with the person to say, hey, I want to explore the possibility that we might be uh, in league with one another. So Jesus has accepted the invitation to be in the Pharisees' house. Now, normally, when we think of Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees, we think of sparks flying, don't we? We really do, because if you read Matthew's gospel, there's not a single positive story in Matthew's gospel about Jesus and the Pharisees. There's nothing but an escalating tension between them. But in Luke's gospel, Luke often depicts Jesus as going to their homes and sitting and having dinner table fellowship with them. And so the dinner was likely a Sabbath banquet. After the Sabbath, once it was allowed for them to work, they would have this big sprawling banquet. And the dinner likely took place in the yard. Now, some of you, if you're brave, in the rain, during Memorial weekend, you will have your dinner in the yard. You will at least grill outside, right? Right? Well, the yard for them was the central courtyard of the house. The house was kind of U-shaped and their yard was in the center and that's where they had their banquets. And their tables were also U-shaped and they were low to the ground. They didn't have chairs. They reclined on large cushions which sat on rugs, very Middle Eastern, as you might imagine. And so, so this is an open air dinner. And the locals, it was just understood, it was a custom that the local villagers could come and come to the gate of the home, which was right in the front, and look into the courtyard and eavesdrop on the debates between the rabbis. So after Sabbath, they would go home and have this banquet and sit, and if there was a visiting rabbi or a visiting teacher, he would come also, and they would sit there and they would debate matters of Torah together, sometimes friendly, sometimes not, sometimes heated, and so, uh, so the people would listen in on this. Now, uh, Jesus is perfectly comfortable hobnobbing with the well-connected and the wealthy, and that's what this Pharisee is. He doesn't care who it is. He will tell the gospel of God's grace and his love and mercy to anyone who will listen. A Second observation that we take from the text is that the woman was a notorious sinner who broke a social rule. She breaks a lot of rules, But she is known in the town. We don't know what sin she's known for. We can guess what sin she's known for. She could be the daughter of a prominent uh, camel tradesman. If she's the daughter of a prominent camel trader, then she's automatically a sinner because a camel is what? Not kosher, not clean. In the Old Testament, it's the largest, nastiest, unclean animal uh, in the entire book. And so if she's part of this family and part of this business, then she would surely be a sinner. Or she could be a tax collector or the wife of a tax collector, but it says that she was the sinner, not her husband. It, it, uh, she also could be a leather worker or a tanner, but those, those women were few and far between. Women typically didn't run uh, trade shops, though it was not unheard of, but most likely she is a prostitute. She is either a single prostitute or she runs a brothel out of her house. We don't know which one. But most scholars do agree that this is probably in reference to uh, prostitution. So her sins are many and they are great. And she has brought an alabaster jar. These alabaster jars have been found by archeologists by the thousands buried in the sand. And there are these beautiful sort of ornate stone, soft stone jars that are bluish green and they're tall, and usually they would fill them with something like spikenard or something really expensive. What it's filled with would probably cost her a year's wages, so she has money. She is a woman of means. And then they would seal the top of it for special occasions, so she would literally have to bring it into the dinner and break it onto Jesus' feet. And so, uh, I want you to know that this culture was different than ours. You and I live in, in a a culture where we get to enjoy all kinds of, of technology, modern technologies, but this was a pre-deodorant society. I have two junior hires, and I have two pre-deodorant people right now living in my home. You know what it's like, but they would use perfumes and natural oils to cover the stench or the smell just of hot, sweaty living in the ancient world. She found Jesus reclining at this U-shaped table. He probably has his back to her. And when she walks up behind him, we don't know at what point she's become convicted of her sin. We don't know that. It could have been in an open air sermon just out on a hillside or in the street or wherever Jesus was preaching out in public. It likely was not in a synagogue because she wasn't allowed into the synagogue. They wouldn't allow her there. She's a sinful woman. She's broken the law. She's perverted. She helps, she allows other men to enter this lifestyle. This is really frowned upon. And so she likely is not allowed to come to church. It is frowned upon for her to even come into the synagogue. She would defile that synagogue ritually. She likely has not gone to someone's home either to just like Peter's house or somebody's home where she's uh, gone to hear Jesus and just sort of sit in someone else's open courtyard to listen to him talk about God's love and mercy and grace for sinners But somewhere, somehow, she has heard about Jesus. The stories about Jesus have filled her ears. And now something, the Holy Spirit is drawing her and compelling her to come to Christ. And maybe, maybe she stands outside of the courtyard and stands there with all the other villagers listening to Jesus give the Pharisees and the scribes just lessons on God's grace. But somehow, she is cut to the heart for her sin. I highly suspect this is how it went down. That she, she just decides, the Holy Spirit is working on her, and she decides, I'm going to bring my alabaster jar, I'm going to break that jar on his feet, and then I'm going to anoint him and ask for, for forgiveness. And I'm going to repent. But I highly suspect when she gets to Jesus, Jesus is just that kind of person. <laughs> where When you're in his presence, you feel like someone is looking at you who can look through you who knows the secrets of your heart and of your mind. That's how, That's what it feels like to be in the presence of Jesus of Nazareth. And so she walks up to him, and when she comes close, she can't help but begin to sob and to weep. In any case, she is a scandal. She is a walking outrage. She has done two things she absolutely should not do. One, she has come into the house of a, a Pharisee who is a holy man. So you don't go into the house and of a holy man and defile his home the other thing that she absolutely should not be doing is approaching jesus jesus is a rabbi a recognized rabbi so she should not be coming to him she for sure should not be touching him and she definitely shouldn't let down her hair that was very much frowned upon in this devout buttoned up jewish society she lets her long hair down and after weeping her repentance out on his feet she kisses his feet customarily and just dries his feet with her hair and anoints him with the perfume. And, and this, the whole thing is just an outrageous, outrageous scandal. And then we note that the Pharisee's reaction is self-righteousness and judgment in verse 39. Now this man, I can imagine him putting on his best poker face. So he's, he's sitting there at the table and he just kind of swallows his judgment deep. To a place where only God can tell what his thoughts are. And what does he think? Well, some prophet this guy is. If this guy were a prophet of God, then he would know who this woman is who is touching him and what she has done. That woman, he says, is a sinner. She's a sinner. See that? And Jesus turns and looks at him and does a couple of things. The first thing that he does is he shows Simon, Shimon, he shows him that he is a prophet. By bearing the secrets of his heart. And the secret that he is keeping in his heart that he doesn't even know. This guy has blinders on. He doesn't even know. He is blind to the fact that he is self-righteous. And his self-rightness before God is not right enough. It's not right enough. I learned the lesson of self-righteousness a few years back. I told some of you this story before, but I'll tell you again. A few years back when I lived in Post Falls, uh, I had the opportunity uh, to take a driving course on a Monday night. Um, It was a driving course for adults, and I was invited to be there by the kind officer who pulled me over (laughs) a couple days before that. And he was kind, he was really nice, he just invited me. He said, hey, listen, uh, uh, you know, you broke the law, you ran through a red light here, a little bit late. He goes, you gotta go to this class or I gotta give you a ticket. I said, fine, I'll go to the class. I mean, I was not happy about it, even though he was very nice. So I get to the class, I was there just a tad late. I mean, I got there just on time actually, but it was already full, so I had to sit in the back. And when I got there and I sat in the back, I looked around at that class and you know what I saw? The riffraff. A bunch of lawbreakers. Yeah, they were lawbreakers. And I'm not kidding. I was angry. I was angry. I hate to say this. I was a pastor at the time. And I sat there and I folded my arms and I looked at those other people and I thought, these people are really sinners. These people are lawbreakers. What I did is not so bad. And then the instructor got up and he did something very interesting. He said, "Uh, okay, now I want, before we start the class, I want everyone in this room to say what you did, tell us what got you in here, and then tell us if you think you deserve to be here or not. And I couldn't wait. When, when he got to me, I was going to tell him, I don't, I, I don't deserve to be here like these other people. And, but one by one, every sinner in that class confessed their sins and said, yes, I deserve to be here. And that was like a wrecking ball to my hardened heart. And when they got to me, I was like in tears. I was like, yes, I, I ran through a rant and I'm sorry. I, you know, like I was just so broken over my sin. And that night I joined the fellowship of the Post Falls Traffic Violators. <laughs> but I learned something very important about self-righteousness. It's Self-righteousness has a tendency to point its finger at others and completely be blind to the fact that you and I have broken the law too. And the Pharisee has the wrong standard of measurement. He thinks he's the standard. He thinks that his relative righteousness is the standard, but he doesn't understand, according to Romans 3, he didn't have that passage back then, but I wish he had, because if he had, he would know that God is the standard. God is the standard. And while the uppity Pharisee sits there and looks down his self-righteous nose at everybody else, Jesus is reading his very inner thoughts. Fourth observation, Jesus answers the challenge with a very interesting story. Jesus' parable is the answer to his inner challenge. In his thoughts, deep in his soul, only God could know this. What he is thinking, Jesus not only tells him by way of parable, by way of a story, this is what you're thinking, but then shows him that Jesus, more than a prophet, has the authority to forgive a person's sins, to bypass the temple sacrificial cult, to bypass that entire system in Torah, and to unilaterally, directly forgive a person's sins. And so the parable is an answer to his inner objection to Jesus. And he says, two men owed a lender two great sums of money. One man, he says, owed the money lender 500 denarii. That is nearly five years wages. He says, the other person owed the master or the money lender 50 denarii, which is just about a year's wages. Here's what you need to know about both of those sums. Neither one of them are payable. Neither sum is payable. What Jesus is trying to say by way of parable and analogy is neither one of you are righteous before God. Now, she may seem more unrighteous compared to you, but compared to God, you are just as bad. You are just as lost in your sin. And Jesus has taught him masterfully. Jesus has brought him to a conclusion that he cannot escape. It is an inescapable conclusion. Jesus says, how do you see it? Which one loved The money lender more and he said well obviously the one that loved more was the one whose debt was forgiven more have you ever had to learn a lesson and the only way god could teach you that lesson was for to hear it come out of your very mouth i mean to hear god lead you to a point where there was no other conclusion inexorably i have been led to the conclusion that this is the truth that happened to me as a church planter i was a young guy much younger than I am today. I was about 30 years old. And I was just a ball of fire. I was just a nuclear energy plant. I was going to change the world for Jesus. And I decided to launch out and plant this church in a little rural town, Post Falls, Idaho. At the time, we only had about 20,000 people. And I just decided, man, I am, I am going to build a big church. And I am going to fill that church with sinners and people who, who want God and want God's mercy. And I just had this big, hairy, audacious goal and this dream and this vision. And after three and a half years of working on it, I'm telling you, it just circled the drain. I not, no, no matter how much I prayed, and I don't think I've ever prayed harder. Maybe today I'm praying more, but I don't think I've ever prayed harder. I don't, I don't think I've ever worked Harder. I don't ever think that I have just been more creative in terms of just being resourceful in ministry than I was during that church plant. And the failure of that church plant brought me inexorably, inescapably to the conclusion that everything that I thought was on me is not actually on me. It's on God. And God is sovereign. And I was forever, in that church plant, I was forever cured of thinking that I could pray hard enough or work hard enough to get God to move. When I pray, it is like my wife, when my little boys, my little girl, they were little, she would invite them into the kitchen and say, okay, sweetie pies, we're gonna make cookies today. And then like an hour later, the kitchen is 10 times as messy, and the cookies are not edible. Bitch barely edible, but I eat them anyway because I love cookies. <laughs> <laughs> and... And my wife could have made much better gourmet cookies than my kids could ever do. But she has invited them into the process. Why? Not because she wanted great, perfect cookies, but because she wanted my kids to be involved in the process. And that's what our prayers do. Our, our prayers bring us into God's process. They bring us into his will, in alignment with his will, and we get to partner with him to do what he's doing, but until I had that experience and I was able to pray that for my heart and my mind and say, God, this isn't on me. This is on you. And I thank you for letting me partner with this. Until I could pray that, my theology, I wasn't really convinced of it. And this man, Jesus has given him now a theology he can't argue with. He has been led to his own conclusion. And that's the best way to learn. Fifthly, Jesus contrasts their reception of him. Verse 44 through 47, it says this, then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me the customary kiss, greeting, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head to anoint me, but she has put perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as, as her great love has shown. But whoever has forgiven, been forgiven of little loves little. Jesus is not saying you've done little, you've sinned little. He's saying you think you have. And so long as you think that you haven't transgressed, so long as you s- sit there with your smarmy attitude thinking that I don't have very much to be forgiven of, you won't experience the power and the grace and the love of God. You can't experience it. But because of her great debt in sin, she does experience it. Now, when she has come up to him, she has anointed his feet with oil. She is kissing his feet. This is the way in the ancient world that you honor a master. And Simon doesn't think Jesus is the master. So he has not given Jesus the appropriate honor that is due the master. And so the story is really itself a parable, a story about how you and I receive Jesus with honor. We honor him for who he is. How do you honor Jesus? We do not honor Jesus when we fold our arms and say, I don't have very much to be forgiven of. We honor Jesus when we weep our repentance onto his feet, when we bow before him and weep over our sin. And then sixthly, Jesus forgives her sin and charges her with living in restoration with God. Now, this is important because he says, daughter, your sins are forgiven you. He says, you're forgiven. Notice what he says here. Go in shalom. Go in peace. What happens when you and I come to the table and we partake, we commune with God? We partake his flesh We believe in his crushed body and and we believe in his shed blood on our behalf. What happens when we come to his table is you and I receive forgiveness, which means release from the debt of sin. It means release from the punishment and the power of sin. That's what happens when you and I come. We get forgiveness. But then notice what he says to her. Don't just get forgiveness. Live reconciled to God. That's what peace means. Peace with God just means a reconciled relationship. Go in peace. Go in this forgiveness. Live in this forgiveness. And the natural reaction of Simon's pious guess is, who does this man think he is? Going around Jerusalem or going around Judea or Judea or Bethany or Galilee, telling sinners you're forgiven when there's been no sacrifice that is transacted for them? Who does this man think he is? This man thinks that he is God incarnate, and when he offers forgiveness, you really experience the power of his forgiveness. That's who he thinks he is. So here are the takeaways today. Christ has come. The first one I see is that Christ has come not just for the healthy. And the churched, he's come for the unchurched Christ has come for the people you think are the are the most off-limits folks you can think of Christ loves the person that you have a hard time loving and he loves them profoundly he loves them profoundly and he does not just love the sinner he loves the guy sitting in church you know where God is God is in church you know where God is God is in your Bible study God is with you when you gather in his name. The Bible tells us that in Matthew 18. You know where else he is? Oh, he's waiting for sinners to come home. He's waiting for the repentant to come home in weeping over their sin. He's with them too. And he loves the person you think is unlovable. Second takeaway is like the woman, we must honor Christ by receiving him for who he is. We honor him by telling him, yes, you do have the power to forgive me of my sin. I receive it. I receive it from you, enthusiastically receiving the forgiveness that he offers. And like the woman, we must be willing to, willing to repent of and weep over our sin. I don't know about you, but when I really see my sin for what it is, I can't be casual about it. I can't be flippant. I can't just say, God, well, forgive me for that. I'm sorry. Well, kind of Just sweep that under the rug. I don't want God to sweep it under the rug. Man, when I see it for what it is, I want God to confront me with it, to confront me with the darkness of it, to confront me with just how much it separates me from the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. I want to see it for what it is, and so I become convicted like her over my sin and the true darkness of it. And I do not measure myself against anyone else. I, you and I have to refuse to measure ourselves against anyone else or make ourselves the measurement or the standard. And then like the woman, we must go in a reconciled relationship with God, living in a reconciled relationship with the most high God. Would you pray with me? I'm gonna invite the ushers to come up and prepare to hand out communion today. You're here this morning and you, you may feel a little bit more like the woman, the nameless woman, whose name really is peace with God, reconciled with God. And you feel like you're a sinner. And you feel far from God and you, you don't know how to get to Jesus. Would, would you right now confess the truth about yourself? God, we confess all that we are to you. We know that we are without you. And that if we died right now, we would be headed for a Christless eternity. God, we are sinners separated from your holiness. But we also confess that Jesus of Nazareth lived a sinless life, gave his life on the cross as the Lamb of God, and resurrected from the dead three days later to purchase our salvation for us. And we receive your forgiveness now. If you're here this morning, And honestly, you feel more like Simon. You feel more like Simon and you have a tendency to look down on the people who aren't as religious as you. Just confess the sin of religion. God, we confess the sin of being religious. We confess the sin of thinking that we are the standard, we are not, your holiness is. And we all fall short of the glory of God. And so God, would you come and cleanse us all, reprobate and religious alike all who are in need of you, desperate for you and your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.